Say, could I host a welcome to Washington fundraiser for you? Now, my law firm on K Street? Absolutely. At $500 a head, you could pick up 20, 25 grand to help you get started. And how much of that are you going to get? It doesn't come off the top. Down the road, I'll bill each of them 500 an hour whenever I take it to lunch. This is Plausibly Live. In the big scheme of things, when you sit down and you actually think about it, how many people does it actually take in the United States of America to pass and enact a law which is binding upon the entirety of we the people? Now, you may say to yourself, Dave, that's a pretty obvious question. I mean, it's not that complicated. It's simple math, right? In theory, it requires half of the Congress, or a majority of the Congress, 218, plus half the Senate, 51, and one president. It's 270 people. If you were to divide that out, you would find that that's point zero 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 seven six percent of we the people a mere 270 people pass a law which then becomes binding on the rest of us and everybody else that's that's the way it works in our heads anyway reality though can be a little bit different what do i mean Congress, specifically the House of Representatives, has operational rules. A few weeks ago, we saw a really good example of this when we were electing a Speaker of the House. And as you will recall, there technically was no Speaker. Since there is no Speaker, Congress cannot technically sit as Congress. But they have a rule in which Congress can meet, sit, conduct business, not as Congress, but as, quote, the Committee of the Whole of the State of the Union. Essentially what that means is Congress is in session, but we're in a committee, not Congress. Just because the committee happens to consist of every member of Congress doesn't mean it's not a committee. The rules change, definitions change, and ultimately, the definition of what is a quorum changes. Stay with me here. The Committee of the Whole, by rule, can be any number between 100 and 435 members of Congress. As long as there's 100 of them there, technically, it is the Committee of the Whole. And, because of the way the rules are written, you don't actually have to be there. If you've ever watched C-SPAN, you'll know that order speeches are given between, uh, between these committee meetings. And that's Congress, with a speaker who is designated by the speaker, is conducting congressional business, but as a committee, not as Congress. And so the, they could literally have almost no one there. But because of the way the rules are written, the House of Representatives is always considered to be in session unless it has technically adjourned. So unless the Speaker has said, 
This session of Congress is adjourned. Bang, bang. On the gavel, Congress is in session, meaning that the Committee of the Whole can meet virtually 24-7. But by rule, they have to have a minimum of 100 to have a quorum, which means that since the Committee of the Whole can take up bills, didn't know that, did you? The majority then, assuming they have 100 there, would be 51. 51 plus 51 senators plus one president. Now you're down to 103 people or 0.000029% of we the people passing and enacting a law. Now, to be clear, that's not the expected or normal process for major legislation. But like I said, the House rules are that they're always in session, devolving into the Committee of the Whole in order to conduct business with less than the full quorum. By the way, uh, those of you paying close attention will have noticed that Speaker McCarthy was not elected with a full majority of Congress. He was elected with a full majority of the Committee of the Whole, less than was required for for the Congress. Also by rule, I don't know if you knew this or not, it is the Committee of the Whole, sitting as the Congress, sitting as the Committee of the Whole, that hears the State of the Union address, not Congress, not Congress sitting as Congress. They are sitting as the Committee of the Whole. Why does that matter? Because the rules change. And certain behaviors that are not acceptable during Congress are acceptable during the Committee of the Whole. It's stupid, but it's true. Rules are far more relaxed. Almost every vote taken under the Committee of the Whole is a voice vote. It is not recorded. So, how many of the speak, the designated speaker, who is designated by the Speaker of the House for the Committee of the Whole, and is usually someone who is not uh, either on a committee or chair of a committee, uh, is then, you know, calls for a voice vote on the matter at hand. How many all in favor? Say aye. Aye. All opposed? Say no. And it takes 25 members of the Committee of the Whole to demand an actual recorded vote. It's a slippery slope, and it's like most people don't know this stuff. Most people had no clue that this is how these things can be done. Now, again, they're not always done this way, but they can be. In theory, as few as 103 people could enact a law binding on all of the people of the United States. In practicality, a mere 270 people can enact that law, which is binding on all the people of the United States. But in any case, either case, it's less than one millionth of a percent of the people deciding the law for everyone else. And if you will recall last week, we talked about the fact that Brutus was saying that the proposed Congress was, quote, way too small, unquote, and that that few number of legislators was easily subjected to corruption and to influence. I would submit to you that at the time that he wrote that, he was writing it specifically about the House of Representatives, but post-17th Amendment, Kind of applies to both now, doesn't it? And so while the absolute minimum is theoretical, 103, what happens if there's some, I don't know, shenanigans or 
corruption or influence going on in Congress. And a mere 103 people decide what the law is for 355 million Americans. In the big scheme of things, there are two types of government. What do I mean? I don't mean two types of government in the sense of, um, you know, democracy, dictatorship. Um, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the way government works. There are two types of workings in a government. A government, regardless of what it is, either has the consent of the governed. The, the people have agreed that this is the way we want to be governed. Could be a dictatorship. Could be a monarchy. Could be a, a pure democracy. But in any case, the people have agreed that this is how we want to do this. The other way is a government that is forced upon us. Brutus talks about the fact in his fourth letter that there can be no free government, regardless of whether it's forced or consensual, where the people are not possessed of the power of making laws by which they are governed, either in their own persons or substituted in their stead. He then postulates that the representative form of government is really the only practical solution. The democracies, the pure democracy, doesn't work. And everybody's, everybody pretty much agrees with this. The, the experience of the Athenian democracies proved that while it's a fascinating ideal, it's not really practical, particularly in anything more than a few thousand people of a society. The representative format is the only practical solution. And this is why he says, it is so important that the representation be so constituted as to be capable of understanding the true interests of the society for which it acts, and so disposed as to pursue the good and happiness of the people to its ultimate end. It's a lot of words, but what he's essentially saying is, is if this government, if these, if these representatives aren't truly representative, representative, they, it's impossible for them to actually govern with consent unless we, the people, agree that we're just going to accept whatever this small number of people says and abide by it, <laughs> he said with raised eyebrows. Brutus continues in Brutus number four, his concept in Brutus three, and he kind of goes more into depth about these two issues that he has with the size of the of the Congress, the representation. And again, this was written pre-17th Amendment. I think you could lift all of this now, and instead of just saying the House of Representatives, you could say the House and the Senate to both of this. He does not believe that the Congress, as formatted, in any way, shape, or form can represent the actual interests of the people. Why? because it is not truly representative of the people. Now, we hear a lot, in fact, there are articles out there today about how diverse the 118th Congress is. And they will give you a lot of numbers about, you know, there's so many people this, there's so many people that, and, and we've never had this many of that in the Congress before. But is it truly representative of the actualities of we the people? How far down this list do you want to go? 
sex, men and women. How many men are in the country? How many women are in the country? I think it's somewhere around 50% each, might be 51-49, but is Congress 51% male, 49% female? So is it truly representative? What about race? Now you get into all kinds of issues. And then when you start subdividing race into cultures, I mean, how far down this list do you want to go? What percentage of the nation is, I don't know, left-handed? Should that not be represented represented in the in the Congress? Economic stats. How many people are poor? How many people are rich? How many people are middle class? How many people are dependent class? Should that not be taken into account? And in the 435 members of Congress that we have now, I don't think you've got to go very far to say it is not representative of the people as a whole, despite the New York Times article about how diverse Congress is. When you have a Congress that is not truly representative of the people, and actually we could say 535 because you could apply this to the Senate now, when it's not truly representative of the people, and Brutus has a long soliloquy in his letter about what kind of people are running for Congress, and I don't think you would have any argument about the fact that they are artful and deceitful people who are more interested in power than they are in public service. But we'll leave that aside for another day. When you have this many people this few number of people there that are not truly representative of the people, you lose confidence in their ability to actually govern. You lose confidence in their ability to actually pass laws that meet the best interests of the people. And in fact, how often do we have that complaint today? I know it's an aside. I know it's a it's a political issue, and I try to keep political issues out of Constitution Thursday, but let's just talk about Ukraine for a second. How many times has Congress approved money going to Ukraine? Do you think that the vast majority of the, the country, if it were properly representative, represented in Congress, would agree with that? I personally don't think we would, but it would be interesting to find out. Instead of being told that we that this is our number one priority. When you turn to the issue of corruption and influence. With this small number of people, Brutus is absolutely just convinced that this small number of people can be easily corrupted and easily influenced. I love that he uses the word influence because the word, the usage of it actually means bribed. You can bribe these people off. The ability to bribe a small number of people to do what you want is increased exponentially as that group gets bigger. You see what I'm saying? Today, how many people do you actually have to buy off to get a law passed, if, if you were going to do it that way? I'm not saying this happens all the time. I'm not pointing the finger and accusing Congress. But I'm just saying, if I wanted to buy off enough Congress people to get my law passed, how many would I actually have to buy off? Well, the bare minimum would be 103. The maximum would be 270. 269, because you kind of subtract out the president, although you could buy off a president too, I guess, if you wanted to. 270 out of 355 million is not very much. And if you've got enough money to be buying off Congress people, it's probably, 
pretty easy. And you probably don't even have to buy off that many because, as Brutus has explained, these people are very adept at speaking and convincing people to go along with them. So you buy off the most powerful of them, sorry, corrupt and influence the most powerful of them, and eventually you get your bill passed pretty easily. It's not that difficult to do. It's not that costly, at least compared to have to buying off, what if Congress was a thousand people? You'd have to buy off, you know, 500 or so. And his argument is, the more people you have, the more difficult it is for those who are trying to corrupt and influence Congress to accomplish their goal. It's, it exponentially complicates it because you, you number one you got to have more money or more whatever it is you're giving them but number two now you're more likely to have people standing in your way go back to the speaker election a few weeks ago four six people standing in the way were able to hold that whole thing up i know people are saying well this was bad i don't think it was bad i think it was good i think it was indicative of how our Congress should be working. At the same time, if, if Congress was twice the size it was, how many more people could be standing in the way of legislation or actions that might not be in the best interest of the people as represented? I go back to Brutus opened this fourth letter with these words. There can be no free government where the people are not possessed of the power of making the laws by which they are governed, either in their own persons or by others substituted in their stead. In a nation where so few people speak for we the people, do we actually possess the power to make our own laws? Do we actually have that power? to make our own laws. If you called up your congressman and said, hey, we need a law about this, here's you know, 500 of us together saying we need a law about this, do you think your congressman listens? Do you think they care? Or congresswoman? Do we actually possess the power to make our own laws today? Or ever? Is our Congress subject to corruption and influence today? That sounds like a ridiculous question, doesn't it? They will, of course, tell you that's ridiculous. No, Nancy Pelosi would say. But we got some serious questions that shake our confidence about our Congress's susceptibility to corruption and influence, don't we? You don't have to look very far in the old Google machine there to start finding event after event after event after event of congressional influencing scandals. Moreover, we actually have a legal process known as lobbying, where powerful, well-connected people can hire powerful, well-connected attorneys to go and suggest to Congress people what they should and shouldn't support. Is that representation of the people as a whole, or is that representation of the lobbyists? And one last thought. Who controls the election laws for Congress? Who decides how Congress 
is elected. Bueller? Bueller? Anyone? Oh, yeah. Congress does. The Constitution puts the power of how elections for Congress are controlled in the hands of Congress. So if Congress is making its own laws for how it is elected, who's really in charge? And are we consenting to this? Or have we just been compelled to accept it? Was Brutus right? Right? 